welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And I'm Stitch. And this episode is about my eternal obsession with the unsettling horror manga, Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors. It's a fresh entertainment alternative, and many come to experience it. We're very excited today to welcome our guest, Stitch, who is a writer, critic, and purposeful pain in your ass about anti-blackness and fandom. Stitch is here to write what needs writing very slowly. <laughs> that is correct. Um, so let's dive into Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors. Yeah, we're we're so glad that you're here today to talk about this uh like very formative manga. Yeah, they really should have watched what I read as a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so Stitch, tell us what Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors is about. So Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors is the sequel series to the original Pet Shop of Horrors, and it follows Count D, who is this androgynous Chinese count. It's a term that got slapped onto his family generations ago. The interesting thing about Count D is that his pet shop sells just any kind of animal. You have normal cats and dog, but you also have Keaton, dragons. Um, you can probably even assume they have actual Godzilla-esque kaiju somewhere in the store. <laughs> And at surface glance, it's like, oh, these are just pets, but these animals aren't ordinary at any level, even the ones that we're used to seeing, cats, dogs, bunnies, because they can turn into humans or humanoid figures. And their goal is giving their masters exactly what their heart desires, whether or not it's what they need at a given point. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a, a Twilight Zone sort of anthology, you know, like a customer comes in, they ask for something, and then like you said, maybe they'll get what they want, but maybe they'll get what they need, and it rarely works out the way that you would expect, and certainly not the way that the customer would expect. But it always seems to me like Count D kind of knows how it's going to go, and so like there's just something uncanny about each part of the story and then there's like also a larger kind of overarching story that's going on with count d and like his landlord yeah. too, right uh yeah. very of the moment <laughs> yeah. everyone's yeah. hating on their landlords <laughs> yeah yeah his landlord's especially terrible because his landlord Wufei is caught kind of between like what he has to be he is kind of um, displaced mob boss and mm -hmm. what he wants to be, which is apparently not that. And he's also like, this is a recurring thing across both series. Male characters who are assumed to be cishet always fall for D. Right. right. Like, I don't know who this person is. If they are a man or a woman, I know that I'm attracted to them. And because this was written before people really thought about what they needed to portray in these series, like it's relatively open-minded for a manga series from the like late nineties, early two thousands, but you still have like really throwback attitudes. So he's constantly like clearly into Count D, but he can't handle it. And it's hilarious to me <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Is used as like kind of manga gay panic freak out moments sometimes. But there's also like a I think there's a genuine undercurrent of queering the space like the space that count d inhabits is always liminal yes you know between like the spiritual world liminal between masculine and feminine between you know gay and straight and so like count d like brings characters into this space where they have to acknowledge that they have less control over everything in the world and in themselves than they like to tell themselves they do Well, and the gay panic didn't bother me because Count D is one of the few characters that shows up throughout, right? He's the protagonist. He feels very in control. He is not flustered at all by the gay panic. Right. It almost feels like a meta joke, like it's making fun of gay panic. The the Mm -hmm. humor is like one level deeper than it usually was in the way that like gay panic was played on friends or something you know yeah (laughs) right um although we have skipped a little bit ahead uh why don't we uh go into a little bit more detail about the production history all right so um patch off of horrors both of the series that are available in english so the sequel and this one tokyo pet shop of horrors were created by um matsuri akino she is still actually working on this franchise but um the original volumes basically finished uh publishing about like 2006 so for both of the big series this sequel series only has eight of the 12 volumes published in english uh, before publisher tokyo pop initially went under unfortunately it is still not available digitally and is really hard to get in print yeah, I yeah. mean, I was really lucky in that I was able to get it through my local library, and I was able to keep them for a while before someone else reserved them, and I had to turn them back in. Um, <laughs> and then for Alan, I was able to get some used print copies on the Half Price Books website. Um, but yeah, you do have to put in a little bit of effort to get your hands on these. But I think it's worth it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so what was your first experience reading Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors? And like, how old were you when you first discovered them? So I kind of got both series at the same time. I was like 12 or 13. And I powered through the volumes that were available at the library. And by that point, nobody monitored what I read as a child. So they were just like, automatically assuming anything with animation or like really pretty characters was somehow for children so i had already been exposed to jose manga which is aimed at older women like they have complex plots like this is not something that you would find given to actual children for various obvious reasons um so i was like oh i know what this is supposed to be like then I was still like unprepared for like the depth of the storytelling. And I was like, oh my gosh, Count D is a babe. Um, the men in his life, the cis, not really het men, um, Leon, Orcott, and Wu Fei, I thought they were really, really interesting for how they kind of orbited him. 
and um, even from a very young age, I was into like the enemies to friends to lovers uh, trajectory, and it felt like that's where that was going, even when I was like a tadpole. And so I was like, okay, I want mm-hmm. more and more and more of this. It's really evident from the first volume that Wu Fei is providing that like almost erotically interested antagonist angle. <laughs> And then you also have Leon who shows up at different points across the series. I'm just like, oh, this is exactly what I need. And even as a small child, I was like already thinking like ships. I was thinking about ships. <laughs> yeah, I think that's on purpose. And this is like a space to fantasize about these men, right? His uh, landlord is like alpha male Yakuza type of a dude, right? Yeah. Like he's a very like mafia kind of guy. And he softens a lot with Count D. Uh, in interesting ways, I think. He gets so flustered. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's there's another element that I wanted to talk about, too, in the premise that we haven't addressed, that is Count D kind of manifests in Chinatown locations. It seems like he can't live in places where there's not a Chinatown, and that somehow either he's like, a manifestation of that space or like his pet shop full of spiritual creatures that are tied to China somehow needs that larger Chinese presence and culture to manifest in a foreign space. So it's kind of explained in the earlier series, how the legacy of Count D has been shaped over the years. Um, part of why the various D's end up in Chinatowns is because the community of Chinatowns. Like their interconnectedness? Yeah. It's like this is a neighborhood that right. they're, they're around their people, even though they're not technically around their people, because they are the last of their kind in... Volume six, I think, of the original, he kind of makes a point about it. Like, he goes to a specific restaurant because it's in Chinatown. And it kind of speaks to kind of the universality of how the world treats Chinese people. If you look into the history of Chinatowns around the world, a lot of them are born out of Sinophobia. Literally, the refusal to let Chinese people live among other people, like predominantly white people in New York or California. It is only relatively recently in the history of Chinese immigration to the United States that Chinese people were allowed to live outside of Chinatowns and form communities. Like it was a form of segregation that built communities in these Chinatowns. This story even references like Chinatowns in 1930s and 40s Germany. Yeah. You know, during World War II. Yeah, it's very aware of that racism and the yeah. like exoticization, I guess, of Chinese mm-hmm. people. Um, but it also plays off yes. of it. Yeah. Because that's like Count D's whole thing. Yeah. One of my favorite lines was in the chapter where they're in Greece, like on the boat, and all of those other people were like, how did you stay down there so long? And he's like, you know, Chinese people are good at swimming. And and everyone's right, like, yeah. oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
he he just like plays off of the expectations and like he's simultaneously like poking at them and subverting them um mm-hmm. it's kind of clear in the first volume when he's talking to Fei about it and it, aside from the Chinatown aspect the heritage is really important here because Wu Fei isn't fully Japanese, right? Like so, and this is a big deal in Japan. Yeah. If you're half breed in Japan, like I don't think that maybe a lot of people don't know this, but like Japan is very racist, well, like a very <laughs> very racist place. Japan is a what is it? A mono? I can't remember the word, but it's mono something culture. So same with Korea and China. It's a country that has a limited amount of diversity as we understand it um and of course let's not to ignore that there are very strong progressive politics at play like i never want to ignore that there are like there are people rooting for naomi osaka like ride or die for that young woman in japan who recognize Mm -hmm. her as japanese fully regardless of whether she wins or loses a match right and at the same time um the perception is that you have to be fully like parents, grandparents, great grandparents to to count. And I mean, that's how it is in, in a lot of countries. A lot of people still don't see, well, most Americans as Americans, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. So I this, mean, and we have our own history with the one drop rule and all of that. So. Yeah. So Wu Fei is sort of dealing with it. Like I don't know, I don't know that anybody's making him deal with it, but he's he's dealing with it. And when D calls him, kind of calls him out, like, "Are you from Hubei?" He's like, I'm, "Like his his immediate frustration at being recognized as the other, even though D isn't actually judging him for it, because that would be incredibly right. hypocritical of D. It reminds Wu Fei that he is." probably i don't even think he's in the yakuza i think he is running a chinese gang in the heart of shinjuku yes so yeah he's like yeah he's criminally adjacent like he has to be aware of like yeah the yakuza and the triads and the local legitimate government like he's it's a very delicate balancing act that he's up and to and yeah he, th- he's very he threatens to topple it because that's what d does he destabilizes. Yeah. Um, and that reminds me, so I don't know, because I don't remember if I looked at the titles, but so, yes, they do it here too. So in, in all of the chapters for the for both series, the English titles all begin with D. And I thought that was D. the funniest yeah, thing ever. I noticed that. <laughs> oh, I did not even notice that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for pointing that out. That's really funny. Right, so like when I said like D destabilizes, I was like, ah, yes, because like uh, for volume two, <laughs> it's decoration, dealer, da capo, side story, dignity, and I don't know because I don't have uh, that good a grasp of Japanese yet uh, to know how the title conventions work in the original, but I thought it was a really interesting nod to what D represents, which is kind of everything at once it's like you know the classic two worlds kind of thing that you get from fantasy but d is kind of the intersection of those two worlds and is always showing the characters that they have way less control than they believe they do 
you know, over every part of life, whether it's, you know, the detective in America or his, um, or his landlord in Japan. Like in both cases, those characters both think that they understand what's going on with D and they don't have a clue what's actually going on. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone thinks that he's like running a brothel um, and that his pets are prostitutes. And that's like the farthest thing from what could be happening. Yeah. (laughs) They're very bad at this. Um, Incredibly bad at it. Um, I think at one point in the original series, Leon, the detective is like, I think you're a serial killer. And I was like, well, mm. you're not wrong, <laughs> but you're also not <laughs> right. In the first series, he's very much like, well, whatever happens to you will happen to you. I'm really not going to make an effort to help give you guidance. He would just basically throw the customers fully into the deep end. If the customers in Tokyo listen, he's clearly giving hints like kind of like the gremlins he's like uh don't feed this one after midnight that won't end <laughs> well he's telling you what not to do or what to do or why the pet is that special although sometimes he should just say like yes i'm giving you a dragon <laughs> <laughs> there's like a a predatory thing about his pet shop that I appreciate there's a parasitic aspect to the spirits that he is taking care of in his shop who present themselves as loyal animals and they will like give you their loyalty completely. But there's like a a high cost associated with that for like you as a human being either, you know, like a lot of times the person will die or um, or like some other kind of tragic event will unfold because of that and so like it's not as if they're getting nothing out of it exactly it's like a a way for them to get human involvement in their lives i also think that the incense might be like i know it allows the customers to see the human form but i think there is a mention in the first somewhere in the first series that the incense is lure so Mm. there's a magical element period over the pet shop like i think you come to it when you think you need it or when D mm-hmm. thinks you need it. But also I think there's something in the incense. I think this actually has a lot to say about like pet culture. We don't think much about paying for a living creature. A pet is like its own living thing that has its own life and everything. And we kind of get it to be like, Oh, I want something to cuddle and love and that will love me unconditionally. Help me out of my depression. (laughs) Yeah. If you think about it, like that's kind of fucked up. Like it's really kind of a weird thing, but it's very normal in our culture, in our modern culture to just look at something else that has a life because it's a non-human creature and be like, I own you. And I have very little responsibility to your life like you exist for me on some level and and i think that this story like really plays with that in an interesting way that turns the tables on the humans and kind of makes you think about the perspective of a pet's life in an interesting way absolutely yeah. a lot of times the pets are really geared towards giving the person what either they say they want or what they actually need, but mm-hmm. wouldn't be willing to accept. 
if it was just given to them like directly or at face value. I don't know. I think it's really interesting that we're doing this episode right after we did our Animorphs episode because the manga, I mean, we've been focusing on the more like mystical, magical, like metaphorical aspects of it. But the manga also includes a lot of weird actual animal biology and facts. Yes. Um, Like there's that chapter about the different cicada cycles and like the periods matching up. There's one about like cave adaptive animals. Um, And the author often will like take a few pages between chapters to just be like, here's some fun animal facts that I learned while I was doing research for this one. It's really great. There's one where the at the back of the book, she's like, yeah, so Black Widows, um, well, they're venomous, and I got really into playing solitaire, and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> um, but she's fantastic. Yes. She, she clearly did a lot of research on different animals and their role in mythology or in society in order to put this together. I appreciated the mythological beings a little bit more because, like, I know what a cicada is, right? So I was like, I know that this happens. But, like, for something like a Keaton, I was like, I know nothing about Keaton. So, like, having her do that arc, that's the <laughs> that's the Hitler thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's where that comes in. But that was really interesting. You know. Yeah, and, like, I had never heard of a kappa before, or kappa, I must, it's probably kappa? the more Japanese way to pronounce that. Yeah. Uh, the, like, river child's yeah, uh, they're so mythical stressful. creature that they go hunt for. <laughs> <laughs> they're so stressful. Um, I, um, I guess, unfortunately, I had a weeb period around the time that I got into Akino Matsudi's work and like different anime series and manga series. So I knew what some, if they were Japanese creatures, a hundred percent, I knew them. But if they were like, not something you saw in anime, I was like, initially, like, I don't know what this is. Teach me. And then thankfully, end chapter notes did. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way the structure gives her the chance to have that more like conversational direct conversation with the reader like the chapters themselves are traditional stories just in the sense of like perspective and point of view and stuff but then she gets to literally break the fourth wall and turn to the reader and say oh these are all the things that i was thinking about while i was doing this and it's it's really cool it is Manga in general is typically like published like in a magazine mm-hmm. format with many other manga at the same time. And so you'll like have a subscription, let's say to a manga magazine that will be like themed. So like in this case, maybe you have a horror manga magazine. And so you'll get like one episode of Count D and then, you know, like three or four more pages later, you get an episode of some other horror thing by a different author artist combo or the same person sometimes. And so this is like a collection of her stories from that magazine. And so it has extra stuff in it usually as like, you know, since you went out of your way to buy this extra thing, here is like extra content. 
I see. If, if yeah, I guess we kind of skipped over our normal structure um, where Alan and I talked about our first experiences, but this is oh, literally the first <laughs> manga that I've ever read. Oh my gosh. So maybe I don't really, I know, thank you. <laughs> um, I guess it's hard for me to maybe separate things that are like specific to this versus more general to the genre. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it, you know, it took me a while to kind of get used to the flow of reading left to right. But by the end of the first volume, I think I like pretty much had it down. <laughs> right. So explain what you mean for people who maybe haven't read manga. Oh, I guess I, <laughs> there could be people out there who are equally as unexposed as I am. Yeah. So, you know, so like if you pick up the book and hold it the way that you normally would hold an English book, you're actually looking at the back cover. Um, right. So, like, everything reads in the opposite direction. This, um, when I first started reading manga, they actually used to publish the manga flipped. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I started, yeah. too. It doesn't work, really. Like, no, it doesn't. It messes up the story. It's really weird, because you'd think, mm-hmm. oh, they're just flipping it. But it's kind of like how... Um, Artists will be like, hey, when you finish your canvas, when you finish the sketch or whatever, flip it to make sure everything looks good, right? If you flip this, it does not look good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not that the art's not beautiful, it's just this literally is not how... It, it ruins the page design. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, it's just one of those things where you get used to it after a while. And they're really good, usually, about putting a page there that says, hey, this is the back of the book. Yeah. Don't start here. <laughs> or, or, like, so some of them are polite. This one's firm. It's like, stop. This is the back of the book. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't want to spoil a great ending. And then they have the actual directions of, like, how to do the panel flow. Mm-hmm. Which was actually super helpful for me. Yay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. It's a little harder when you're doing uh, digital. I get my manga through Futekia. It's like a boys love online subscription service. So I, I'm like, I know how this works objectively, but I also keep trying to swipe the other direction on my tablet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like funny. a very muscle memory physical thing. Yeah. Okay, so I have a general manga question. I think Matsuri Akino, did she do both the drawing and the storytelling? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. And that seems pretty unusual for American comics, right? Don't they usually have like a separate artist and writer? So how American comics work, so DC or Marvel, you have a writer, you have a penciler, you have a colorist, you have a typesetter. Um... And those are like the four main roles with manga. Um, now you have like teams, but the, the main person who usually gets the credit for both writing and um, drawing, that's that's the creator, right? So Matsuri Akino is she's she did the lines and she did the story, like the dialogue. But she probably had someone come in and like so the patterns on on these clothing, right? Those mm, are yeah. probably. Uh, somebody had to put those on. Those aren't drawn. Those are like a film uh, at this point when right. this came out. Yep. So somebody had to sit there and cut to make sure the patterns 
fit the fit the outfit. And she wasn't doing that. So like, that's like an assistant job. That happens with backgrounds a lot too in manga, where you'll either have a background artist or you'll have like a a pasted kind of um, line art version of like, you know, like a cityscape or something like that, mm-hmm. or like a forest. And then, you know, then you'll have the main characters who are actually line drawn by the creator. I see. Okay. That does explain some of the like difference in textures that I was noticing, but like couldn't really pin down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a shortcut. I mean, it's a shortcut, but I also think it works aesthetically. Oh yeah. It's a total aesthetic. Yeah. It's funny too, because, <laughs> because people like my age and stitch, you know, like grew up with Japanese culture because of this kind of backdoor thing that stitch was talking about where, you know, like the moral panic of the 1950s in America around like, is Batman gay because he has Robin? Is he a pedophile? Like his only friend is a boy. What's up with that? Uh, is this teaching kids to be gay? Uh, that whole thing like stunted the the entire growth of graphic art stories in North America and completely like created this branching kind of thing between Japan and America where like stitch said these stories are made for older women who are into like supernatural horror to read and you'll have like people you know on their way to work reading manga and this is kind of like someone reading like a a paperback or something like that in America of like you know not like a prestigious paperback but like a a throwaway like I don't know. Like, like John like Grissom like mystery or something. But like lower than that, you know, like, <laughs> like that's really mainstream, <laughs> like, like, a, like a crappy version of that. You know what I mean? Like, this is not like high art or anything, like, well, say, but it's normal. I for- would actually say, because it depends on what you're reading, right? Um, and totally, when you're totally, reading totally. It. Because yeah. when, so Pet Shop of Horrors is kind of very clearly punching above the weight class for the genre. Similar things out at the time were like Kimi Wapeto, which is about a woman who adopts a man as her dog, which is good, but mm-hmm. what a terrifying premise because she definitely does take a man <laughs> in off the street. Um, or Peach Girl, which was marketed to teenagers, but was not actually for teenagers. Because it depends on who you're reading and what years you were reading it in. So in Japan in the 90s, maybe it wasn't mainstream to read Pet Shop of Horrors, but it also wasn't being a woman in your 20s reading like Dragon Ball. Right. Because yes. that would be like, well, yeah. why are you reading this? This is not that great. That's weird, right? Yeah, exactly. This is for small boys. Yeah, I guess that's the point that I'm trying to make is that like this would seem weird it, for adults to be reading this stuff in America, but is not weird at all in Japan. And therefore, like the themes that you would find in this stuff are like totally different than what North American expectations might be, but is totally normal yeah. in Japan. Like you said, they're marketing to different levels of people. And that doesn't happen with DC and Marvel and stuff. Like it's gotten marginally better. 
I see. But like, especially in the 90s, there was just the idea that like anything that's animated is for kids. Is right. For and children. that's how right. uh, I saw Perfect Blue when I was 13. Perfect Blue. And that traumatized yeah. me because yeah. that's not a movie a 13 year old need to see, needs to see. <laughs> I'm the same way. Like I, I got into a lot of anime and that was really part of the appeal of anime in the late 80s and 90s was that it was edgy. Right. Because like the adults around didn't really understand that this was not being marketed to children. They were like, you know, it's animated. Therefore, it is for children because like that is the aesthetic space that we carved out in America for that type of material. But that's not how it was in Japan. And so I watched something like Ninja Scroll and they're like, oh, this is an animated thing with ninjas in it. And there's like. (laughs) like hyper violence and rape and like you know all kinds of very sexualized themes and stuff and so it's like existential in its in its mood and so but that was kind of cool right because like it's like you're saying stitch that you got into something that was like way above your head but you were keeping up with it and there's kind of this thrill of this is adult and like i'm in a space that i'm not quite supposed to be or ready for but it like that's exciting and interesting all on its own and i think manga and anime and stuff like that really delivered that for a certain generation yeah um it's a little i feel like it's a little different now weirdly because it's so much easier to get access right Mm -hmm. like my niece i have a niece who's like 17 she can just go on crunchyroll and watch her anime like I used to have to watch anime like in three parts on YouTube with like really messed up <laughs> subtitles and now she just she just goes on Crunchyroll she watches her her Naruto and she keeps it moving you know or she'll read a manga and she'll be like hey can you get this on your Kindle for me and I'll buy her a manga and she'll read it as opposed to having to go to the library or like Again, most of the sequels for Pet Shop of Horrors aren't in English. There's no way to legally get those in English. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I saw, I was like Googling to see if the uh, license got picked up by anyone. And I found somebody that had translated it, but that's not legal. So I'm like, well, I can't recommend that to anyone. But for years, you had no hope of getting your favorite series translated to English. Yeah, and I... I think that's still largely true. Like most manga has not been translated because there's only like a certain slice of manga that publishers were willing to take a risk on. And like the kinds of stories that were imported over here are largely like whole arcs, like entire stories. But there's a lot of stuff in Japan that's like, like they'll start something, it doesn't get much of an audience and then it's just dropped a lot of that type of stuff exists that'll have like really interesting premises and characters and, and be like pretty edgy and like out there, but like doesn't go anywhere. And so publishers are like, well, we're not going to mess with this because Americans don't like that. I see. So they would kind of like translate the first few volumes of like 20 things and then only pick one to like see to the end, whatever happened Mm -hmm. to be like the most popular. It's usually what's the most popular in Japan and what has like a full arc. So you're getting stuff like Sailor Moon or like, you know, sports manga so many uh, sports for boys manga. and stuff like that. 
Yeah. So many. So many. Um, horror has been picking up, like, not necessarily, like, kind of cerebral things, like Pet Shop of Horrors, but, like, Chainsaw Man. Um, Tokyo Ghoul <laughs> did really well. Tokyo Ghoul is maybe my second favorite manga series, even though, like, I frequently just shout about it but um tokyo ghoul did really well when it came out to the point where it got like three anime series like it got like the Mm -hmm. full arc normally uh if a show does a it does an anime series part way through a manga you just get up to where they get tired right like you if there's no series end for the book the anime gets like a mediocre ending or they just do one arc and they're like that's it Tokyo Ghoul got the full arc. That's also something that wouldn't have happened when I when I was growing up. Like if I liked something and it got a twelve episode anime, that was it. It's not getting the rest. Right. Yep. Uh, do you want to talk about the Hitler chapter? Because <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Not gonna lie, really threw me for a loop. My first time through Volume One, I was like, oh, oh, suddenly Hitler here, and like Ava Braun is our point of view character kind of for that chapter yeah like alan said she's the customer she is initially sympathetic Mm -hmm. and then you realize she is not (laughs) yeah it is a really interesting transition it really does kind of make you sympathize with her um she's just like yearning for a connection and has fallen in love with this person who obviously is literally hitler um but you do kind of like feel for her on some (laughs) level um and then it gets to the point where it's like oh yeah no she's totally chill with genocide like she is a super fucked up human whatever makes her man happy yeah Yeah. it's literally her thing yeah and it it's pretty messed up it's a very It's, it's actually great i think it's a very delicate balance right of like she somehow man she being the author not Ava Braun uh she somehow manages to like not ignore how horrifying and terrible the holocaust was but also like have that as the background of the more character grounded like mystical dark in a different kind of way story like it definitely doesn't erase or minimize the horror of like what it is to fucking genocide a people yeah because they're like people who did this right it's not like monsters who did it and i think it's so easy to fall into that and so often you know like especially when americans make supernatural stories that involve nazis we make nazis into literal monsters and i think that it kind of excuses things in a way Mm -hmm. to be like well this is their nature you know she the author is is like exploring something about human nature which is monstrous and alarming and is an important i'm always interested in this when japanese artists investigate world war ii because japan was allied with germany Mm -hmm. and was up to very terrible shit in china and korea that is like exactly parallel to the holocaust which I don't think that a lot of Americans are very well educated on. Really, we tend taught. to like see Japan as like victims. The Pacific Theater in World War II is basically compressed down into like 
was it right to drop the bomb or not? Like, we're still stuck right. on was our attempt at, like, basically genocide acceptable or not. Right. Uh, <laughs> this is actually really kind of fitting that we're talking about this right now because, like, the the anniversary of the bomb drop was, like, a day or two ago from when we're recording. And... um then it's still a non-response. Like apparently, the mayors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been constantly asking for acknowledgement of how awful the nuclear bomb drop was to like to the countries that have nuclear weapons still, and like there's like no response, and we're still stuck on this very, very binary approach to World War Two, and it's hard for people to understand that. Two things can be true at once. The bomb drop was... <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, right? You know, it's like the bomb drop is absolutely horrifying and an act of attempted genocide. And then also Japan was complicit in multiple massive war crimes, not just against people outside of Japan as we know it, like like Korea and China, but also in Okinawa. Like mm. this, it's it's and their own soldiers yeah, too. Um, and then one of the things that's really interesting with Patch Off of Horrors is that this how this shows growth for D because D's family was largely killed off. That there's only the D lineage of these beings because of genocide. So at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. you know, like if this had shown up in the previous volume. In the previous series, it would have been in line with D realizing that his path, like the unexplored, like, like he never, until like maybe the midway point of the first series, he didn't really think about why he was doing what he was doing. It was plainly like, I'm going to punish humans because of what humans did to us. And so even, it, so so this, uh, ch- the size story shows that before all of this, in the 19th, late 1930s 1940s that d was that d's grandfather was so adamant on punishing humans that he kind of helped and or he let it happen yeah actually yeah Yeah. it's kind of terrible i keep forgetting that not forgetting but like god (laughs) like in terms of terrible characters That, like, speaks to the Japanese complicity of it all, right? Like, they aided and abetted Germany, and I don't think that they can... I don't think that a serious artist can, like, look at that period and not contemplate what that means. And then, you know, like, you get somebody, like, the creator of Attack on Titan, on the one hand, who will, like, defend that with, like, with like a kind of pride and be like, no, we were a great empire and we were held back. Or, like, this kind of introspection of like you know there's something monstrous about enabling abusers like Mm -hmm. your need for love which is a human need which is a normal healthy human need can go so far as to like ruin an entire nation you know and like turn the world inside out because you indulge in that need so deeply that you become monstrous. I, like, that's really interesting. It is absolutely a sign that Akino Matsuri sat with 
what um because there are things that you can't flesh out in a manga it's not enough pages the audience might not pick up on it or they'll pick up on the wrong things but the overarching themes across the generations of of d's is that they are always growing like so they're actually supposed to be the same person not like like in literally but like it's i had this son he will follow my mission he will do exactly as i did but then they're all personality wise very different and they're all growing so the 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 little d that's in california now is more progressive than count d who's more progressive than his father who's way more progressive than his grandfather mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's just like a lineage that is growing it's really interesting like i have to see like um the other series that are that are in this are prequels so it's like like france in the 1900s like or the 19th century so the 1800s so i'm like really interested to see how those match up with what what we know of d in the present seeing these characters pre um modernity i guess like how Mm -hmm. they how they interacted with the world because like humans i would say humans several centuries ago were different not better but just so vastly different that your response to them as an immortal would have to be different. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. And I think the world building there on how D works is also in line with like Chinese sensibilities about rebirth and like recurrence of yourself. And this is not like a, you know, you say Chinese is like problematic, you know, racializing type of, of thing. And then also, you know, like China is largely an atheist state now so it's not like people exactly believe in these kind of things but but count d is like kind of a throwback anyway in the sensibilities of like you know mysterious japan anyway but the point being like that as you are born again and again in kind of like the washa idea of how the existence of the soul works it's not just a carbon copy recapitulation of the same thing there's an evolution of growth, like you're saying, over time. And hopefully you're coming to like a deeper enlightenment, more compassion. The world building of D in particular, like you said, across all these different series, illustrates that kind of idea or explores that kind of idea. You know, even if it's just using it as a story device. It's really interesting. <laughs> and I kind of hope that like other people get into it over the years so we can maybe get the other stuff translated officially so we can see how we can put the different Ds into conversation and see that trajectory better. I think the grandfather mellows in a way that the father never does, but the grandfather starts out like really bad <laughs> and is then like <laughs> by the time Ds are on, he's like, oh, I guess my grandchild i guess i have to be better but the father's like no this thing that i put brought into this world isn't behaving great i'll take him out like <laughs> right <laughs> genuinely terrible it's so interesting here you guys hearing you guys talk about this because um 
I only read three volumes, and I feel like with that little chunk, I didn't quite get as much of the of like Count D's story. I mean, there were a couple chapters that dealt with his grandfather. I was much more focused on like the episodic stories and what they were saying rather than like the overall arc. Um, so it's cool to hear that there's like a lot more there that I just like didn't quite get to yet. But you will eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the themes that I think jumped out the most just from the three volumes that I read was the idea of sacrifice. I actually almost bounced really hard off of the first chapter of the first volume because it involves the pet helping a mother sacrifice her life to save her child, mm, which like yeah. is a really like it can be a really meaningful thing, but I think it also is something that is expected of women and of mothers yeah. in a way that it's not mm -hmm. expected of other type of people. And I was just mm -hmm. kind of like, Ugh, like, is this whole thing going to be just kind of like regressive playing into ideas of gender? And I could not have been more wrong. <laughs> that first story. Yeah. I feel like there is just kind of like a gross way of like, suggesting that people should always sacrifice themselves or like lose themselves and have nothing no like sense of individuality or like mm -hmm. uh you know sense of self-preservation um but like a lot of the other chapters i think really play off of that differently like there's one where the purpose of the pet isn't to help someone be ready to sacrifice themselves but it's about helping people let go of other people be accepting of other people sacrificing themselves or um the one where the pet is essentially like helping an older couple deal with the fact that their child died yeah but in like a really bittersweet way because like, the pet is helping them cope, but also kind of, like, preventing them from really moving on. And, like, ultimately, she just decides to stay with them until they die. <laughs> so it's, like, are they ever really going to move on? I don't know. It's, like, there's lots of really interesting questions about, like, what is the catharsis that we need and how do we go about getting that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it's a lot, like, the majority of the stories deal with some form of sacrifice, whether it is the human sacrificing something or the pet sacrificing something, because the pet sacrifices the for the old couple. That's a sacrifice to not go back to the pet shop, because the pet shop is essentially like a sanctuary. Yeah. The ones that focus specifically like on love, like the deepness of the love that develops or exist between the customer and uh, the pet they get from Count D, it's marked by this like profound sacrifice or like this deep suffering. Um, mm -hmm. The chapter, I think it's in the first volume with the Yakuza dude. He's in love with his boss and he has the, her dog bite him at the end to let make him let make her let go of him. So so she yeah. so they fall and then like every time I read it I cry 
because yeah that was the one that i was thinking of that i think provides such a strong kind of like counterpoint to that first chapter where the mom sacrifices herself they live together in the pet shop forever like who's this uh terrible looking dog (laughs) he's just a stray i think you can read that first story differently too like after you understand how kind of complicated it is because it was her desire to fulfill her patriarchal role as a mother that destroyed her Mm, yeah and and that's not really an endorsement of doing that you know what i mean like and it was her toxic boyfriend coming back like she on the one hand she knew that he was going to come back because she could feel it deep inside of her that the anxiety of it was giving her nightmares she felt very much like it was going to happen and yet she when she had opportunities to change her life and move away even though those opportunities are not great she doesn't take them and instead she like it's it's almost like an easy way out for her morally speaking i see where you can't like you know you can't like say oh she was a bad mom because she was like even the the news like kind of underlines wow what a what a great mom she was but now she's not in this kid's life anymore one of the things it made me think of the first time i read it i was in my um tony morrison phase which is a weird phase to have but it is a phase i did have uh tony morrison did uh, beloved which revolves around um a formerly enslaved woman who killed her her daughter like she's gonna kill all of her children but mm-hmm. killed her daughter to basically save save her from being taken back into slavery it's based off of something that happened like there was a case it was documented and for the rest of the book, she is haunted by Beloved, by the ghost of her daughter, um, in very, very visceral ways. When I was reading it, I was thinking how in grad school I did a class and we covered Beloved, and one of my classmates was like, well, she made a bad choice to kill her daughter. And I was like, what choice would you make? Like, like the future you could see for your child was horrific. And, like, the sacrifice and stuff is, like, really complicated. The scene in the in the chapter where she swings the child in front of her and he gets hurt was, like, absolutely, you shouldn't do that. But mm-hmm. ultimately, these choices happen because they're not good choices. You, If you don't see that there is an alternative, you're going to make the bad choice. And she didn't really have an alternative because she died that's like the choice was my life or my kid's life yeah yeah it's very depressing (laughs) (laughs) well it's horror right it's exploring that space and it's and it's confronting us you know so often you know stories begin and end in the middle of things right that's the famous thing about stories and they don't go all the way until people die they just end on some note that is supposed to give us some kind of idea about life. But like to go to the end of this woman's life where she is murdered by her ex-boyfriend, the entire context of it changes to be like, well, what does that event mean for her? And for her, it was about like fulfilling her role as a mother as she saw it. And then we, the audience are left in the space of like contemplating 
the meaning of that and the worth of it. And I don't think the story necessarily is pushing us in any direction. It's just exploring the space because it's, you know, like if it was marketed towards kids, I would expect a little bit more input from the story to say like, and that was good or, and that was bad. But adult fiction tends not to do that. It just tends to throw something at us to chew on. Yeah. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I also found the pandemic episode really interesting, obviously, like (laughs) given that it was written, you know, so long ago, I guess post-SARS or maybe during SARS, uh, the original. I found it interesting because in the story, it kind of like plays into a lot of the pandemic conspiracy theories that are running wild right now. Like the vaccine in the comic, it literally is a plot by the government to get rid of all the undesirables and like kill people, Mm. (laughs) which was so weird (laughs) to read about that. It asks a lot of really interesting questions about quarantine and sacrifice. Again, what we were saying that I think is the episode where Count D talks the most explicitly about what is the value of a life. Or I think he the word he uses is the weight of a life. It's really hard to make those kind of trolley problem calculations that life doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's probably one of the best stories in the in the run because of how it applies still like so some of the stories are not always timely especially any of the ones that involve tech because those are always really like wild to realize how much we've done even in just looking at like the tech on display but with with like the pandemic stuff this is like what we are dealing with now but it's also what people dealt with then and what people dealt with like with the spanish flu Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. kind of just reinforces that we're just really not good at getting out of ruts actually (laughs) (laughs) it's even what happened uh you know with like the black plague and stuff in europe it's always the underclass who pays for things you know like any way you want to slice it it's always the lower class people who die um yeah and, and, you know, if enough of us die, then the rich people are get destabilized. I never realized that. Which is like, again, sacrifice and sucks. Yeah. And I think the fact that the pets are also in like a very liminal in-between space between animals and humans. I think it does a good job of highlighting how hypocritical a lot of the stuff we do with respect to animal is is like i'm not a vegetarian i can't really like speak to that without being a bit of a hypocrite but you know when there is you know you know like an outbreak of avian flu or something and we're trying to keep it from spreading and it or like you know like foot and mouth disease and it's like okay we'll just like slaughter all of the pigs or all of the cows or all of the birds or whatever in this region like we think about it from a very practical utilitarian like economic perspective and not even from the perspective of like we are killing all of these creatures that are you know maybe not sentient in the human way but 
have some level of cognition and emotion that is probably closer to us than we would like to acknowledge. Yeah. I experience a lot of, not necessarily guilt, but, like, I'm hyper aware of, like, eating. <laughs> like, so one of my episodes, I did an episode with the rapper that I love. She she is a vegan and she's in Korea and she's like, it's very difficult. Korea is very much not a place that makes being vegan super easy. And so we were talking about that. We would also we were also talking about like just how we don't think about animals. It's like, oh yeah, I had barbecue. I ate this or like even one of the things I I think about is how we talk about roadkill. First of all, roadkill. That's that's the word mm-hmm. we use. But also there's never really a sense of like, oh, this hurts. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, that's gross. And we move on. But we wouldn't do that for a person. And it's just very complicated. And like, whenever I think too hard about this, I'm like, I'm going to just be sad somewhere <laughs> because it's <laughs> tough. It creates a discontinuity in like our experience of the world, which I think is what is really good about this story. Uh, you know, as like a set of stories, but is also the thing that horror is really good at. And I guess what I mean is that as humans, we believe that first we understand and correctly perceive the universe around us. And then second, we have a lot of control over it because of that perception. And, you know, like as our technology has gotten better and we have more influence over the world. We just tend to think that like our interior moral sensibilities should be like inflicted on the world. So, you know, you talk about like vegetarianism, like I understand when people talk about like the suffering of animals and, and I have a lot of sympathy for that, but there's the other side of that coin is that it ignores that we are also animals who live on death like everything else in this world does that is alive like everything that needs energy gets it from something else except dying. for plants even like <laughs> well i was gonna say even plants because there's biological material in the soil that okay, they that's need true. And picture in plants. order to exist yeah oh yeah some mm-hmm. plants and some plants are parasites like feeding off of other plants like mistletoe and stuff other plants yeah and so there's like you know and and i don't say that as like and therefore the world is an immoral place where we can do whatever we want like uh, that's not what i'm saying our human culture will tend to try to insulate us from the actual world Mm -hmm. like this is like the long-term project i think of like human culture at large is to try and put ourselves into a bubble where the world makes sense to us and the world is not interested in our perspective on this. I think (laughs) like it does what it does. And that invades our sensibilities sometimes like in the form of a pandemic, for example, and underlines for us every once in a while, how we're in control of absolutely fucking Mm -hmm. nothing. And we don't understand the world. Actually. Uh, We just understand a tiny slice of it. Maybe. And that is, like, very colored by our cultural history and a lot of other assumptions that have been baked into the way that we've been taught to see the world. Uh, And I think horror is really good at uncovering 
things that we are used to in a different light. Yeah. You know, and and so that's what this series does really well is like, oh, you want a cute pet that is going to like help you emotionally and give you companionship? Well, here is a whole nother light on sacrifice, love, companionship, you know, lifelong relationships, romance, and, you know, every other human experience, the dark side of that, so to speak, the side that's uncontrollable, the, the side of the universe that we don't understand and probably never will be able to totally comprehend. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I always recommend, even though I hate Eli Roth, um, History of Horror says <laughs> similar things to what you just said about like the nature of horror, the role of kind of the role of fear in fiction. And so while Eli Roth is terrible and whatever, it's still a good series to kind of like branch off of and explore what what we're into. Mm-hmm. I don't think like a lot of people who are into horror kind of think of it in terms of like, oh, well, how many dead bodies will we see? And horror is really far beyond that. Like, there's not actually that much gore in Pet Shop of Horrors. It's more like yeah. psychological, situational. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, that doesn't feel good. But it's not because you're seeing something gross. It's because you're being faced with your humanity or the absence of humanity as you understand it. It's really good. I really love this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was afraid of that. To be honest, Anya sent the books to me and um, and she was like, you know, this uh, 90s horror manga that I've never heard of from kind of like a, a beloved but obscure place. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> like I've read horror, manga. <laughs> this, you know, are people's faces going to be split in half and it's like grotesque corpses. But this is like really psychologically uh, situated and is uh is really really well written, I think, and nuanced and balanced and uh, thoughtful. It's so good, and it, it compares to because um, like the other the other book that I was like, oh, we could possibly do this was Count Kane. But Count Kane not only is incredibly gory at points um, because that's what Kauri Yuki does, but it's also I think full of violence against women that is not actually ever addressed, like. People don't get punished mm. well enough for that. They're just like, yeah, this happens. It's Victorian era England. And it's like, okay, but that didn't actually happen in Victorian era England. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're just using that as an excuse. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, it's old. So like, like all, all of my favorite manga series are like from 2008 or earlier. Pretty much exclusively Jose manga for that older generation. And then it was usually like some kind of thriller or horror series because um, of what it showed you about the author and the audience. Because we're talking about like Japanese women in their 20s and 30s creating and consuming this. And at the time when I was reading them, it wasn't really easy to find like blogs or YouTube videos, right? Like you didn't actually have this access to find out like what horror these people were experiencing, what they thought of. And manga created by and for them was a really good gateway into like me being super nosy and looking into fandoms later. So I was like, oh, well, this had a fandom. These people were influenced. 
to create. Like, there are books that I can probably, uh, like, if I sat with them, I could probably point at the references to Pet Shop of Horrors because it wasn't just formative for me, it was formative for a lot of people in and out of Japan. And that's some things, mm. like, we've talked about, the differences between uh, Japanese media and, like, uh, like what's marketed here in the U.S. And it's relatively recently that we're seeing this kind of introspective horror show up more in young-ish adult fiction to adult fiction. And it's because a lot of people who grew up like us, uh, like me and Alan, who read manga and who internalized really interesting plots and ideas are now getting to write and publish here in the U.S. So it's like mm -hmm. they can go, oh, yes, um, I read this really great book. I had questions, and then they put those questions into what they do. I'm sure someone out there is like, yeah, I've totally been inspired by Pet Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And that's so cool. Yep. It's like the whole phenomenon of like, now there's a, I think there's a 100% black mm -hmm. anime studio from like <laughs> the line artists to like animators to voice people, which is so funny because like when I was growing up, it was considered like a black subculture thing, which I wasn't aware of at the time. <laughs> But that was because it was like some of the only content that you could get that wasn't made by white people in America, right? And that was like speaking to something different and you were allowed to watch it because it was animated <laughs> and you were a kid. It's so weird, the it's intersection of all that. It's super interesting. There's a whole thing where like a lot of the rappers, like so like 20 rappers, like like Asian culture, it's featured very yes, heavily yeah. Different Asian cultures feature very heavily in, like, hip-hop, right? Like, you have Wu-Tang Clan, you have Megan Thee Stallion mm -hmm. with her obsession with My Hero Academia. Uh, Lil Uzi Vert <laughs> has talked about his interests in anime, in K-pop. Um, he stands G-Friend, though, so we don't trust his opinions, just letting you know. Um <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but it's like a really interesting relationship. Because then at the same time, in these countries, right, you have the My Hero Academia uh, person. His, um, one of his designers who does like the fashion loves Megan Thee Stallion. That influences in, in the art from yeah. one of the characters. You have Korean idols who are like, yeah, I love blah, 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 blah. Like one even though it's a really terrible movie, one Korean idol was like, I love the help. Unfortunate, but he loves the oh. help. <laughs> um, and then you have like mm -hmm. the, the, the cultures are in conversation. And I think that's really interesting to see because like, I don't know, it's, it's really, really positive to think about how many people have been really well impacted by this media and how much, of modern storytelling worldwide has been influenced by really interesting series like Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors, like Sailor Moon, like Parasite, which is terrifying, but it did influence a lot of people. Oh, God. Yeah. Yep. Eva, stuff like that, you know, Neon Genos, Evangelion. And all also that a thing I shouldn't have watched as a child. <laughs> I'm way more influenced by the manga and anime that I read than even like the Marvel comics, which I absolutely loved in the 80s and 90s, just because they right. were more complicated and they were like more artistically honest. 
and more sophisticated. You know, like I love the old Stan Lee comics and, you know, like Ultimate Spider-Man and things like that. But at the end of the day, like give me berserk or give me, you know what I mean? Like complex, something that might be upsetting, but is ultimately well thought out and interesting. And yeah, because I I did a lot of work when I was in like undergrad on like comic books. And there is absolutely a point where you're just like, why can't you return to what comics were before the comics code? Why can't you make interesting comics for everyone? Because I guess like at the same time that English language, like superhero comics are seen as for children, right? Like, so you can't have like sex on the page, like not even really the implication of it, um, unless it's in certain Mm -hmm. um, adult brands, right? At the same time you have that, where it's like, this isn't for children, but then the plots feel incredibly immature. It's very rare that you get a fleshed out, like super full arc that that impacts the future of a of a universe. Like so, volume one of of Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors matters. You know, the the last volume is going to reference stuff. You know, like they're still pulling from the first volume with DC and Marvel. Something that comes out um, today isn't going to matter. F- five years from now it may not even matter five months from now yeah and i guess that's the point that i make in that we like systemically made that choice to be irrelevant by like infantilizing an entire genre of art of like well graphic art and animated art is for children therefore it's irrelevant and and so what became really influential in north america was graphic art and animated art that came out of other places that didn't make that choice. So it's just funny to me because like, that's a conservative impulse to be like, Oh no, Batman will make you gay. (laughs) Um, No poison Ivy makes you gay, Alan. Right. Yeah. Poison Ivy makes you poison. Ivy does make you gay though. That's true. (laughs) Um, But, but you know, but at the same time, they're the kind of people who are like, Oh, China is scary. And Japan is, we're better than Japan because they're Asian. They're more influential on my generation and on millennial generation than America is because their art was not stifled. If you yeah. see what I'm saying, like, like they, it's, it's like Gollum biting the ring off and falling in the volcano. Like they undid themselves yeah. <laughs> by fucking up the art of North America. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, I feel like we kind of got at what our, outro usually is but without having to explicitly ask the questions (laughs) Uh, so we can just join us next time for an episode on the first three books of the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner and we're going to be discussing that with a special guest Kate or Caitlin uh, who you might know from our His Dark Materials podcast Measures of Truth um, and I am really looking forward to that conversation. It's a super interesting series. Each book kind of has a different little catch that has to do with an unreliable narrator or perspective. Um, but the books really work even once you already know kind of like what the catch is and go back and reread it. Um, and I think they're just, you know, the characters are great. Um, and it's a really interesting story 
we're doing like the woman author hat trick at this point. Oh yeah, because we did like Animorphs and then this one and now that. I mean, we have a lot of women authors on the show. Oh, I know. It's great. It's just, uh, I'm just trying to think if that was, that wasn't on purpose or anything. It just happened to play out that way. And if you like what we do, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stitch. Um, We had a great time talking with you. Um, What do you tell people where they can find you and your work online? Sure. Um, So you can go on my website, which is Stitches Media Mix, or you can find me on Teen Vogue. I have a column where I talk about fandom, all of the fandom, called Fan Service, and that updates twice a month. No idea when during the month, but two times. And that's... (laughs) Everything else is on my website, so if I... If there's anything you're interested in, that's where you'll find it. (laughs) Awesome. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast. Visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com slash contact, or send an email to contact at halloweddgrownmedia.com Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.